This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, this is an auspicious occasion. It's lucky episode 13. Ooh, that's perfect timing. Because today we're doing a very lucky wrap-up episode with our very special and very lucky wrap-up segment. So lucky. So lucky. But before we get into them, let's start off with a little bit of sorting chat. I'm ready. Sort me. All right, so I've been thinking, you know, we're still in this billion-year-long pandemic. We don't do a lot of socializing. I want you to tell me about something that is absolutely charming and delightful that you do, but which, you know, far too few people get to witness because of this interminable global pandemic. Oh, it's so interminable. So here is a thing that I that I think is incredibly charming that I do mm-hmm. that everybody is missing out on right now, which mm-hmm. is that I really love to match my lipstick to an unexpected part of my outfit, like my tights or my Ooh. shoes. But Ooh. nobody can see anything from the tits down. Because people only see me on Zoom. Yeah. So I just want people to know that Yeah. sometimes my tights match my lipstick or eyeshadow and you can't see it, but it's there. You know what? I see you and I witness this <laughs> incredibly charming thing that you do. Thank you. Thank you. What about you, Marcel? <laughs> I mean, everything about you is charming. So how do you even narrow it down? Powerfully untrue. Um, we might have talked about this before, not on the podcast, but you know the soda water or fizzy water line bubbly? Oh, yep. So I refer to those as Michael Bublé's. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And and so <laughs> like but but I mean like consistently. Like like in messages, like when one of the wonderful humans I live with is like, "Hey, I'm running to the store. Does anybody need anything?" I will specifically request a case of grapefruit Michael Bublé's. Grapefruit's the best flavor of Michael Bublé's. I agree, but do you know what? I what? tried the cherry one by accident. Ooh. I think it, it got like delivered, and I was expecting it to be really gross. Mm-mm. But yes. I actually really liked it. It reminded me of Dr. Pepper, but without the like sticky sweetness. Oh. So it was like a little bit spicy. Marcel, I love you, but that sounds cursed. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely cursed. Listen, I'm very charming and uh weird you're so charming and you're so funny and it's a real loss to everybody that we don't get to hear you call soda water michael buble's in person but at least we get it on this podcast yeah yeah definitely Alrighty, you ready to wrap things up Alrighty, i am All right. Well, if you're anything like us, you've completely forgotten about our special wrap-up episode segments. So here's a refresher. For these episodes, we have something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. First up, something old. It's an oldie but a goodie. That's right. It's Granger Danger. Now... Because we already did a feminist theory episode for this book, we have talked about Hermione in this book. But I think there are a couple of things we can pull out and take a little bit deeper as we, you know, return to our um, traditional Granger Danger segment. And Mm -hmm. one that really stood out to me on this reread was the conflation of Hermione's job to be like the moral compass of the group. And 
the way she is registered as unpleasant or bossy or shrill to the narrator. So, so as we have argued from Harry's perspective. And that really stood out for me in that scene where Hermione is reminding him that he still has to go to the death day party, even though it doesn't feel fun anymore. And there's something else more fun to do that he'd rather do instead. And says, a promise is a promise, Hermione reminded Harry bossily. You said you'd go to the death day party. And I was like, okay, I mean, one, what a shitty way to describe somebody. Bossily. Bossily, right? Like it's deeply, yeah. it's deeply judgmental, but in a particularly gendered way. Mm-hmm. But it also is making it Hermione's job to offer moral lessons to these boys mm-hmm. in a way that mm-hmm. resonates with a whole history of children's literature where women's job, particularly white women's job, is to be the moral center of the world and that they're there to like, teach boys how to be better. And then I started thinking about like this whole idea, this idea with a long history that like boys are inherently, you know, risk prone. Rascals. And rascals (laughs) and are just going to like steal cars and go on wacky adventures. And girls are inherently wags and scolds and there to like get you in line. Really resonates with this whole boys will be boys discourse, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is an idea with a long history that really justifies some like pretty horrific forms of violence at the end of the day. Yeah. And violence that is pretty consistently enacted on those girls. Mm -hmm. You know, there is in part this history of like women's job to do this moralizing is I mean, it's complicated. In part, it is a role that white women have taken on to keep ourselves safe, right? Mm -hmm. That like you teach people to treat you better because that's what you've got because you don't have any real like political or legal power until very recently. But it also has like deeply racialized undertones, right? Like Mm -hmm. part of what is at work in this idea of white women as the moral driver of the nation is like, part of the larger project of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. I mean, this gets complicated depending on your reading of Hermione, because a lot of readers do read her as a woman of color, and that Mm -hmm. complicates and shifts the valences of the emotional labor that she is doing. But if we read Hermione as a white woman in the setting, then we need to think both about how like how fucked up it is that she is being made to do this work of being the the finger wagging moral center to her friends, despite the fact that she is also a 12 year old. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, how that's part of this like longer history in which white women are presumed to just be like inherently good and inherently moral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is a topic I would love to spend more time on in a different episode. There is a wonderful book about sort of sentimentality in the development of white women as the moral drivers of the nation and how that overlaps with 19th century race science and like the invention of sex as a stable category that is super, super interesting. But that is too complicated for a wrap up episode. So <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. But actually tell me about it later and we'll talk about it. But why don't you tell me about something you noticed in this read through about Hermione? So I'm wondering if we've ever talked before about how shitty it is that Hermione does 100% of the work making that polyjuice potion and doesn't even get to go on the adventure. 100%. Like she stays trapped in that bathroom for over an hour being a cat. And then in the hospital wing for a month. Yeah. A month. That really blew me away, this reading. I really don't think I'd process before that it was a month. That is a long time to be stuck in the hospital as a 12-year-old. That's wild. Yeah, as a 12-year-old cat. You're totally right. And we might have talked about this before, but a sort of resonance popped up for me this time around thinking about it, which is what are the gendered roles in adventure? Mm -hmm. And... How is it that, like, the girl part of the adventure team has to be left behind while the boys go out? In these first two books, she is consistently, 
like the first one to be cut out of the adventure, the first one to be left behind, where she lends her skills is always the advanced preparation, like the homework and literally the homework. (laughs) Right. And literally the homework. Literally the homework. Yeah. And it's got this real resonance of like, well, women's proper place is at home. So she does mm-hmm. all the work in the private sphere. She does all of this mm-hmm. like domestic home and emotional labor. And then when it's time to go out and go on bold militaristic adventures, <laughs> it's a boy job. Like, how did I not notice how sexist these books were the first time I read them? <laughs> Well, so one thing I know that we have talked about before is the fact that, you know, Harry and Ron literally spend an hour as Crabbe and Goyle, and it doesn't give them any empathy into these two characters whatsoever. And I think your point earlier, Hannah, about Hermione being the sort of moral compass of this group, it makes me wonder if she had gone on that journey... How might empathy have entered into the conversation a little bit early? Like, what might our moral compass character have noticed about the Slytherin common room or the way Malfoy talks to his two best friends or something that might have, like, allowed these three 12-year-olds to have a conversation about how, like, unhappy these kids must be, you know? But, of course, we don't get that. And in some ways, you know, we're also spared. We're spared that conversation in which Hermione would again have to do this bossy explaining to Harry and Ron how empathy works. (laughs) You're making me think just kind of connected to empathy and their experience of going into the Slytherin common room. This little thing I noticed on this read through is that later on when Tom Riddle's diary is stolen from Harry's room, he's like... Well, it has to have been a Gryffindor because only Gryffindors can get into the Gryffindor common room. And I was like, like a month ago, you got into the Slytherin common room. You literally know that's not true. All you need is the password. Yeah. Anyway. Poor Hermione. I don't think she's well served in this book. I think this probably is the worst book for Hermione in terms of how frequently she is left behind. Mm -hmm. But hopefully we'll get some more bold and exciting Hermione scenes in the books to come. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Next up, it's something new. Our newest wrap-up segment dedicated to my ongoing obsession with what the Wizarding World is wearing. Welcome mm. to the Luke book. Ooh. <laughs> this is my favorite new segment. Because <laughs> you love the name. I love the name, but I also love your ability to zero in on the fashion sense of the Wizarding World and put it into historical context, which is a really remarkable skill, Hannah. I'm really discovering a personal passion for the representation of fashion in the Wizarding World, so I'm really excited Mm -hmm. to be doing this. So (laughs) I went back through the book and pulled out what I believe is every instance of Gilderoy Lockhart's outfits being described oh wow and i am going to read them through to you i might have missed some apologies if i've missed some but i will read the ones that i found do you know what this could have made a really beautiful chart it could have made a beautiful chart i'm not really a (laughs) chart maker myself i don't have your your flair for categorization so here's what i found one okay The real Lockhart was wearing robes of forget-me-not blue, which exactly matched his eyes. His pointed wizard's hat was set at a jaunty angle on his wavy hair. Two. (laughs) Several seats along, Harry saw Gilderoy Lockhart, dressed in robes of aquamarine. Three. Gilderoy Lockhart, however, was immaculate in sweeping robes of turquoise, his golden hair shining under a perfectly positioned turquoise hat with gold trimming. Oh. Four. Gilderoy Lockhart, wearing robes of palest mauve today, came striding out. Five. Gilderoy Lockhart was walking onto the stage, resplendent in robes of deep plum, and accompanied by none other than Snape, wearing his usual black. Oh. And six. 
Lockhart wearing lurid pink robes to match the decorations was waving for silence. <laughs> so. This is great. <laughs> one, what a rainbow of outfits Lockhart has. Like, oh, absolutely iconic. A sumptuous closet, to be sure. Just remarkable, this man's use of color. I know we've already talked about the sort of homophobic dog whistle of the way that Lockhart dresses. But I want to talk also about the idea of professionalism in dress and how deeply gendered and classed and raced the idea of dressing professionally is. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's at work in these descriptions is that they are meant to be a shorthand for Lockhart being unprofessional, Mm. that he does not fit in, that he is not a good teacher because he is thinking about fashion too much. And what does it mean to say that somebody who is attentive to their appearance, who, you know, cares about how they dress, is unserious? Mm -hmm. So this is part of the sort of larger context of policing how people dress in professional settings, but also the very specific way we police how people dress in academic settings, where your dress is often meant to signify, you know, how serious you are. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's this great 2019 article that my friend Erica Thorkelson wrote for The Walrus, which is a Canadian publication, if the title didn't make it obvious, uh, called (laughs) The Perils of Professional Dress, that really beautifully summarizes a lot of these challenges around professional dress and its relationship to things like class and race. So she opens with this story about being mocked at work for wearing brown dress shoes with black pants as a young working class woman. Whoa. Yeah. And then ties it in to the fact that like, while that was, you know, a moment of class bullying, Mm -hmm. that there is something larger at stake in terms of the ability to read the small cues of appropriate dress and how those tacit understandings of the way that you're supposed to dress in particular environments are used to like keep people out of those environments, right? You don't know how to read those rules or you don't have access to the things that would let you fit in. And as a result, you lose the job, you lose the promotion, you lose the access to resources. Mm -hmm. And these things are all like really amped up by different ways in which our bodies are marked as other. So fat women, for example, face a lot of sort of heightened discrimination around the way we dress because we are always already perceived as lazy and sloppy and stupid. And this is held out in studies that fat women tend to be paid less, ignored for promotions, penalized professionally and financially because we are perceived as less competent. And Black women, of course, are systematically targeted by racist micro and macroaggressions in the workplace. And we hear a lot about particularly the way that Black women's natural hair is very frequently treated as unprofessional and inappropriate for, you know, corporate workplaces. So we've got lots of examples of the way that, like, dressing right and fitting in is used as a way to police people and keep them out, even if you like technically are a non-discriminatory workplace, it's still like, oh, well, you just don't really fit into the workplace culture, Mm. right? Which is like something that we're being told about Lockhart kind of implicitly, like, oh, he just doesn't really fit into the workplace culture and like all of his colleagues just hate him. (laughs) Which like, okay, yes, it turns out he's a child murderer. So like legit, but... (laughs) They don't know that yet. If they did, they wouldn't have hired him. Yeah, they don't know that yet. Hopefully, hopefully they wouldn't have hired him. I don't. You can never really be sure with Hogwarts. Mm. But all of this made me think in particular about academia, Mm -hmm. where, again, we have all of these rules, but they're so tacit, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And they're so unevenly applied. And I think where you see this in particular is like, the stereotype of the old white professor who can be like just so wildly rumpled like food stains on him <laughs> like ink like 20 year old ink stains up his arm like and it's just like a charming oh haha he's living the life of the mind he's just an mm. absent minded academic but you mm-hmm. read any young woman academic particularly a young woman of color like student evaluations and the comments on what people wear 
and how they dress and what their bodies look like and whether or not they wear makeup, like the amount of body policing that happens is absolutely wild. And it just so much stood out to me this time around that like, this is an academic environment and Lockhart is a very queer coded character. Mm-hmm. And the narrative is telling us repeatedly that he does not fit in because he is wearing fun colors. Mm. You know, I think you are spot on. It's making me think about how Snape is the only person in the book who we're told, you know, always wears black. Mm -hmm. And Snape is very bad. (laughs) But I think the absence of description of other professors' wardrobes, like, it really does bring home the point that you're making. You know, Dumbledore, who we have already accepted is like a sort of whimsical godlike figure who descends upon the castle every now and again and like does charming things like canceling school exams for a treat that like he wears sort of sparkly fantasy pajama robes and stuff like that um (laughs) (laughs) but Dumbledore is that old absent-minded Professor that you're describing, Mm -hmm. he's allowed by the conventions of white supremacy and patriarchy to be eccentric Mm -hmm. in his dress. Whereas Lockhart, who is a new teacher and is supposed to be sort of establishing his authority and his competence, we know more about his preferred colors (laughs) than we do about him. His, his academic training, which, again, as you said, like, he doesn't have any. So there is that. <laughs> I mean, it's this balance, right? Like, no, he is legitimately a bad teacher. But, you know, what are the ways that the text signals to us that he is a bad teacher? It does this thing where it's like, oh, we can tell he doesn't belong here because he wears his hat at a jaunty angle. That's right. And listen, who among us hasn't worn a hat at a jaunty angle? <laughs> Speak now or forever hold your peace. That's what I say. Yeah, yeah. I still, I remember so many forms of like wildly gendered coaching and professionalization that women academics have received about going on the job market. Like a friend of mine being told that she had to make sure to wear opaque tights because if her tights were too sheer, when she sat down, her knees would look paler and it would distract the hiring committee. What? Yeah. I was told once that I was brave because I wore a purple blazer to a job interview. Oh, my God. (laughs) Right? And it's often implicit, right? It's often not a sort of somebody saying out loud to themselves, I don't think we should hire this person because they wore gold hoops. And I think gold hoops are a sign of a lack of professionalism that is itself embedded in deeply racist stereotypes. Like, people aren't recognizing that, right? Like, they're just subconsciously identifying clothing as signaling in particular ways. Um, And I think that's what's at work in how Lockhart's sumptuous outfits are being described. I'm convinced. Great, great. Well, that's, you know what? That's all I care about. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, one more tiny piece for this segment before we move on. Yep. I continue unendingly, ceaselessly (laughs) to beat the drum and die on the hill of Ropegate. (laughs) And so let me draw your attention to one additional detail, which is that Hermione very specifically says that she sneaked spare robes out of the laundry, um, pointing out that they will need bigger sizes once they're crab and goyle. This is when they're taking the polyjuice potion and describes the robes becoming too short when once they have completed their transformation. So they change into the new robe so that they'll be long enough. If they were wearing trousers or shirts, they would have ripped those apart when they transformed. Like Hulk. Like Hulk. (laughs) They are only wearing robes. Wow. I got to tell you, the people are definitely on board, Hannah. Like when I was listening to our most recent unedited episode that we released as a Patreon bonus, Mm -hmm. I was like, I can't even believe I was ever on team trousers like that's so obvious 
<laughs> so you have me so convinced that I forgot that I ever disagreed with you. Oh, bless. <laughs> At last, Marcel, you're on the right side of history. <laughs> the side of the angels. <laughs> Well, it's time for something borrowed. Borrowed, that is, from fellow Not Sorry Productions podcast, Twilight in Quarantine. In each wrap-up episode, we're going to talk about something new that we noticed, or especially loved, on this read-through of the book. And we're calling this segment, Orchidious! (laughs) Okay, I want to talk about the scene... When Ron tries to curse Malfoy for using that slur against Hermione. When Malfoy calls Hermione a mudblood and Ron says, eat slugs, Malfoy, and then shoots a curse or a jinx or a hex or whatever at him with his broken wand and it ends up rebounding and then he vomits slugs for the next 12 hours. Um, Ron doesn't do a lot of commendable stuff in this series. (laughs) And we don't really talk about Ron being a role model very often. (laughs) But, you know, I was thinking this time around that this is a really great instance in which he's like a really top-notch role model. Mm. But in the book, Hermione doesn't know what a mudblood is. And so Ron could easily have like underplayed it or gotten uncomfortable trying to explain what it is, or even pretended that he also didn't know what the word meant. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, his reaction shows everyone present, including Hermione, who's still like, what the heck just happened? And Malfoy himself, that Malfoy's behavior is unacceptable. Mm. Even to Ron's own humiliation. <laughs> And this is what we're supposed to do with our privilege, right? Like when we witness someone saying or doing something hateful and we have the privilege to stand up to them, we're supposed to do that. Even if we're afraid that it might embarrass us, we're supposed to step up. Mm -hmm. So I don't like thinking about this scene because... Slugs are so gross. Yeah, because the slugs are so gross. Because the idea of vomiting up slugs for 12 hours is... Horrifying. Poor Ron. Poor Ron. But I do nevertheless like thinking about this moment as a metaphor for the anxiety that we might feel as regular fallible humans in the experiences that we have where we really need to show up for our peers and our friends and strangers and, you know, be on the side of justice. I love that reading, particularly I think of the slugs as anxiety and this idea Mm -hmm. that standing up against hatred and being the person who like steps forward and says like, no, that's not acceptable Mm -hmm. doesn't come without consequences, right? Mm -hmm. That it like at the very least could be a moment of intense discomfort and then, you know, could come with other kinds of social consequences, but that you do it anyway, that it is worth Mm -hmm. vomiting slugs for 12 hours because you (laughs) love and care for the person that you are stepping in for. And it's something that I have often heard friends talk about is like that sense of you're in a classroom and a professor says something racist and nobody, none of the white students speak up, Mm -hmm. right? It's the burden of the people of color in the room to intervene that, Somebody, you know, misgenders somebody and none of the cis people step up, right? So this way that you make the work of defending yourself and defending your identity and claiming your right to be in a space, you make that by default the responsibility of the people who are already marginalized in that space Mm -hmm. versus being like, no, I know it's unacceptable behavior. That's unacceptable behavior. I know that's a slur. You're not saying it in front of me. Yeah. And especially like in this situation, too, it doesn't often happen that when someone says something hateful, the person on the receiving end of that hateful statement is ignorant of what is intended. But I think that even in this case, it does really show us that like, even if you don't know if this is the right thing to do, you definitely need to say something. You definitely need to like jump in there and be like, absolutely not. No. And the fact that Ron's wand is broken (laughs) 
like I feel like the scene would be so much less relatable if Ron's wand hadn't been broken and he had like successfully cursed Malfoy and then he had like walked away feeling really good about himself as like yeah I showed him whereas instead he walks away being like oh my god (laughs) that was so uncomfortable it would be more of a transparent white knighting moment right where it's like oh thank goodness a white man came to the rescue Mm -hmm. and I think there's even a possibility of reading that as like Ron's wand is broken and not replaced in part because his family is poor Mm -hmm. and that there is a sort of possibility of reading, you know, solidarity between working class or non-wealthy wizards and muggle-born wizards, that these are different sort of possible sites of intersectional solidarity. Mm -hmm. Now, I would also hope that as they mature, that like Hermione and her friends can have conversations about when she is and is not comfortable with them intervening. Because that is not always what you want in that moment, right? Sometimes what you want is like, actually, I just want to disengage. I don't want to have a fight about this. I don't want to be marked out. I just want to step out of the situation, right? And so like, there's complexities to this that that come out of, you know, having conversations with your friends in your community about what actions you can take in support of them. But um, I really like your reading of that scene. Oh, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) It's how I feel anytime I need to say anything to anyone. I <laughs> like your vomiting slugs. Like I'm vomiting slugs. <laughs> Ooh, anxiety. It's so fun. <laughs> Ooh. All right, Hannah. What have you got for us? I mean, not that different a scene at the end of the day. <laughs> so what I was noticing is the scene where Dumbledore has brought Harry to his office for the first time to talk about the Chamber of Secrets and the attacks on Muggle-born students. And Harry's afraid he's in trouble, but even more afraid that Harry is in trouble is Hagrid, who hears that Harry has been called up and comes bursting into his office in a panic, holding a dead rooster, desperately defending Harry. And the scene is played kind of for laughs, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Hagrid is obviously overreacting and Dumbledore is all sort of like twinkly and like sly about it. Like, no, no, Hagrid, I wasn't gonna. Yeah, don't be silly. Yeah. And Hagrid leaves looking embarrassed. That's the actual words from the text. Mm -hmm. So the scene is treated as a bit of a joke. You know, Hagrid's often played for comic relief. But we later find out in the book that Hagrid himself, as a student, was falsely accused of exactly the thing he thinks Harry is being falsely accused of. And his life was essentially ruined by nobody believing him, by nobody believing in him. So his fear is not an overreaction. It's really real. And his desire to defend Harry isn't paranoia. It comes out of this incredibly traumatic experience that happened to Hagrid as a child. And that is actually going to repeat later in this book and result in him being imprisoned. And so that moment when he comes bursting into the office is Hagrid like saving his childhood self, intervening where there wasn't an adult to intervene for him or even in this case, playing the role for Harry that Dumbledore played for Hagrid when he was young, Mm -hmm. right? Being the teacher who says, no, I believe in him. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it isn't necessary, but it's still an incredibly heroic moment. You're so right, because Hagrid, if he's performing the role that Dumbledore had performed for him, then like, We might think that he would just assume like, oh, well, Dumbledore's there and he won't let anything happen. But instead, like the depth and the severity of Hagrid's trauma is such that he just knows he needs to act. Mm -hmm. And so he just goes. And he isn't acting from the same position of power that Dumbledore was, right? As a sort of respected faculty member with a lot of other forms of like social capital, right? He is Mm -hmm. this outcast. He's not allowed to use magic. He's in this sort of quasi-servant role. You know, he's this liminal figure. He doesn't have that kind of power, but that does not stop him. Mm -hmm. I mean, another example of somebody who's like, I might not have a lot of power, but when I see an injustice being done, I'm going to step in and do what I can to stop it, you know, whether or not that's actually possible. 
what does this say about where we're at emotionally that these are the things that we both that we are both bringing to the table for this this segment on things that we noticed and loved (laughs) I mean I think it says a few things but in part it brings me back to the conversation we had a few episodes ago about losing some of the joy of these books through the revelations about Mm. the author Mm-hmm. and maybe wanting in our rereading to still find these moments that felt like they were opening up possibilities when we first read these books. I love that. Yeah. Right? So sort of still seeing in the texts what are the things that so many of us were drawn to mm-hmm. when we encountered these books for the first time that suggested another way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think there are still these moments that are really beautiful that I think we can sort of pull out and continue to remember why they mattered to us, even if our relationships to the books is getting, you know, necessarily more complicated. Yeah, you're so right. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finally, we've got something blue. Devastating fun facts, in which Marcel shares some fun facts about Hogwarts students and staff not mentioned in the books because these things were not part of Harry's journey. Get ready to cry, everyone! (laughs) Okay, well, fun fact. Dumbledore knows that Filch's quick spell course is basically snake oil. And snake oil, by the way, is just something that someone sells and it doesn't do anything, but they tell you it does all kinds of stuff. But Dumbledore pays for it out of the Hogwarts cleaning supplies budget so that Filch doesn't get swindled by the charlatans who run the quick spell company. Did you know? Fun fact. I didn't know that. It's it's, it's fun. <laughs> uh, fun fact. Even though Harry doesn't give Colin Creevy the time of day, Colin is actually much loved by his Gryffindor cohort. He's the smallest of the whole group, but there's another student named Billy McBragg who's really tall and strong for their age, and Billy gives Colin piggyback rides around the castle. And so then these two, who might have stuck out by themselves, they stick together instead. Fun fact. That was also really fun. <laughs> piggyback rides. Okay. <sighs> Fun fact, Gilderoy Lockhart organizes the first picture day that Hogwarts has had in years. A lot of the teachers are kind of annoyed by it, but in the end, everyone is actually really glad that they participated. The annual tradition is thus reinstated, and Harry Harry saves a photo to give to Mrs. Fig, but he isn't sure how to explain why it's moving because Harry doesn't know that Mrs. Fig is a squib. And so he keeps it at the bottom of his school trunk. But, but in a previous fun fact, you said that she wanted a photo of him and, and never asked for it. Yeah. Marcel. What? Why are you like this? Fun fact. <laughs> I'm broken inside. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Got another. I'm ready. Fun fact. We think Moaning Myrtle gets her nickname because as a ghost, she cries all the time in the bathroom. But it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. So Myrtle Warren is her name. As a student, she didn't have very many friends when she was at Hogwarts. And uh, kids used to make fun of her appearance and her name. And at the start of the 1942-43 school year, which is the year that she dies, She was entering her fourth year, and Myrtle decided that she was going to reinvent herself as a confident and glamorous young woman named Mona Warren. But um, unfortunately, teenagers are bullies, and her efforts to get people to call her Mona instead of Myrtle were for naught. 
and Olive Hornby and her band of bullies started calling the poor child Moaning Myrtle, and the nickname has stuck ever since. For 50 years after her death. This one isn't devastating. Fun fact, the Ford Anglia is definitely sentient and could have gotten itself back to the burrow if it had wanted to go, but... Deep in the Forbidden Forest, there's actually a whole community of muggle objects that have been made sentient. They govern themselves in a beautiful and communal anarchic freedom kind of way. And the Anglia fits right in and so never wants to leave. And that's why the Anglia doesn't fly back to the burrow. Oh, that was the opposite of devastating. Mm-hmm. Fun fact. That was fun. Okay. And so then I have one more. You're going to leave me devastated. It's a poem that teenage Hagrid wrote for Aragog. I really wish I could do a Hagrid voice because I think that would really bring something to this, but my Hagrid impression isn't very good. So you'll just have to imagine it. Oh, you young and mighty spider, I should have known you for a fighter, for no wizard can deny you're a rare and perfect beast. Go you rest as it grows lighter, and I'll come back to you this nighter, you soft and tender spider, my best friend, to say the least. Marcel, that that poem was so good. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Turns out writing writing poems for spiders is one of my secret skills. (laughs) I love this segment so much. It makes me cry every time, and I just love it. Oh my goodness. Well, I am so pleased. (laughs) Before we seal the door to the Chamber of Secrets once and for all, we want to end with some questions and concerns we plan to keep in mind going forward. We have some questions that we're going to return to from last time, such as any new evidence of the Weasley's class status? Yeah. So we said we were going to pay attention to this going forward. So what new clues do we have about this question of, you know, are the Weasleys working class? Are they impoverished gentry? What, if anything, you know, can we read in this book? So we've got a few new pieces of textual evidence one way or the other mm-hmm. at one point. Ron says to Harry that house elves come with big old manors and castles and places like that, and you wouldn't catch one in our house in the borough. Mm -hmm. So there's a distinction being made there between the kinds of inherited wealth Mm -hmm. that are associated with these big old houses and the status of the Weasleys. And I, I do think if the book was going out of their way to suggest that the Weasleys were impoverished gentry who had fallen on hard times a house elf might have indicated as much. Again, this is the kind of segment that I am like eager for feedback from (laughs) British listeners who like, I think can often parse these clues, but that I think is something we can pull out and attend to. (laughs) Yeah. So similarly, I was thinking about the fact that they had a car And I was like, oh, is that maybe a sign of them being more like middle class? Or is the fact that they have a car, is it like a collector's car? Is Mr. Weasley buying antique cars? But I think based on my very preliminary research about the Ford Anglia, which was discontinued in 1967, I think that if these books take place in the 90s, I think that that wasn't long enough ago to make it a classic car the way that if you, you know, bought and refurbished a Ford Anglia today, it would be considered a classic car. I think it would be more akin to like, if you got a K car. A nice reliant automobile. I just don't know enough about cars either to like, I don't know. So there you go. If any of you listeners are car people, tell us if the Ford Anglia signifies anything one way or another. (laughs) Yeah, my theory is just that he probably like picked it up either cheap or free from an impound Mm -hmm. lot so that he could tinker with it. That's, That's my guess. And as we talked about like in an earlier segment... The Weasleys can't afford to replace Ron's wand. 
Mm-hmm. Even though this is quite literally detrimental to his education. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely lacking resources. Mm-hmm. You know, we see them go to their vault. There is no money in that vault. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think, is where we sort of end up with that question. Like, is this a working class family that's never had access to resources Or is this a family with history of access to resources that has fallen on hard times? And again, it's really tricky. I wonder if, you know, the fact that Arthur and Lucius know each other and are like work rivals and obviously have this long history of of tension does suggest that in terms of class, the Weasleys are sort of on a similar playing field to the Malfoys, right? Like in the sense that like they're clearly moving in similar circles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's all this disdain the Malfoys have for the Weasleys, which does, I think, support the impoverished gentry theory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, something that I hadn't thought about before, who gets vaults at Gringotts? Because we know that Dumbledore has a vault. We will find out later that Sirius Black has a vault. We know that Harry has inherited his parents' vault. And the Weasleys have a vault. But, like, does Hagrid have a vault? We never hear anything. Does everyone? Like, is it just a bank account? Or is it, yeah, like a thing that you have when you have wealth? And it's like the, the Weasleys have one, but it's empty now because they used to have a lot and now they don't have it. Yeah, so that's what I'm wondering, which I hadn't thought of before. Mm-hmm. But, hmm curious yeah those vaults are usually packed full of treasures Mm -hmm. so they don't seem to be just like generic bank accounts Mm -hmm. well more to ponder i don't have an answer yet nope me neither but i bet we've got some new questions oh you better believe it okay i'm curious about the disdain that Mr. Borgen has for Lucius Malfoy. Mm. He obviously shows him incredible simpering deference when Mr. Malfoy is in the store. But the second he leaves, Borgen is sort of sneering Mm -hmm. in his direction. And Harry witnesses this. I'm wondering why, like, this is clearly Borgen's clientele. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) so why the disdain are the Malfoys like especially shitty people that even the purveyors of (laughs) the dark arts themselves look down upon them (laughs) I wonder if part of it is that the Malfoys are known for like they were some of the biggest supporters of Voldemort and they were the first people to turn their back on him and totally disavow him after Voldemort fell from power. So it's Mm -hmm. like the people who fought against Voldemort don't trust the Malfoys because they know that Lucius was a Death Eater. But the other people who supported Voldemort don't trust the Malfoys because they turned on Voldemort as soon as they saw the opportunity. So it's like they are people without deep loyalties. And so nobody really trusts them. Ooh, I love that. Yes, yes, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to see that like bear fruit later on. (laughs) Like a tree. Yeah, that's what bears fruit. (laughs) Or a bush. Okay, you've got another one here that was an Instagram hot topic. Yeah, so through the Witch Please Instagram, I get sent a lot of Harry Potter related TikToks, which are delightful and wonderful Mm. and fun and range (laughs) everywhere from like guttingly hilarious to very like scintillating and apt political commentary. And so I, I love it. But this one sparked a conversation about Harry being a horcrux. So in book two, Mm-hmm. Harry gets bitten by the basilisk, but the horcrux that is inside of him doesn't die. So apparently there's like J.K. Rowling canonical input that says that the basilisk venom doesn't kill the horcrux inside of Harry because Harry doesn't die because he's he's rescued. Mm. But this I find sort of unsatisfying. Because all of the other horcruxes are inanimate objects and so they don't die like like the journal doesn't die no although it does bleed so that's weird (laughs) but like okay so the basilisk 
pierces him in the arm. So is like the Horcrux not in his arm? Is it sort of like if you cut off the virus, like in The Walking Dead, when you get bit by a zombie in the leg, if you like cut off the leg, you can avoid the zombie disease? This is exactly what I was thinking. I was like, oh, it must be that the Horcrux is in Harry's soul. Mm -hmm. And so the basilisk venom needs to go into where his soul is. And so so it's really a question of where we think the human soul resides. And if it's in his big toe, then like it's got a ways to travel from the arm. And so Fox gets there in ample time. Could like cut off the progress of the venom before it made its way to his soul box. His soul box in his toenail. Yeah, where you keep your soul <laughs> in its toenail. <laughs> that does explain why it hurts so much when you stub your toe. Yes. Anyway, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's all I've got. Just this this one this one little ponderable. <laughs> Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode 13, lucky number 13, of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or ohwitchplease.ca, or of course, wherever podcasts are found. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to our endlessly patient producer. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know? (coughs) (laughs) Was that a slug? If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear Marcel try to say your username. Ha 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 so fun. I love it. It's like vomiting up slugs. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Thank you to R from RI. I'm starting to think some of you are doing this on purpose. Okay. R from RI, Junior729, or possibly JR729. Uh, Pete Peter Isaac, Academia, Beth DeSombre, Rolls 21, and Rivka underscore B. Thank you so much for your five-star reviews. If you want to hear even more from us, head over to patreon.com slash ohwitch, please, and check out the many exciting forms of bonus content available to you, including, but not limited to, unedited audio, bonus interviews, and Q&A episodes. On our next episode, we're beginning our discussion of book three, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. (gasps) But until then... Later, witches! Witches!